Welcome to Mom and Daughter Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, October 5th. The Do We Really Need an Evaluation edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I run the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 11, Oliver, who's nine, and Teddy, who turned seven today. We live in Tokyo, Japan. And I'm Sarah Wayland. I own Guiding Exceptional Parents. And I have two children who are in their 20s, uh, 26 and 21, and they are Justin and Oliver, and we live outside of Washington, D.C. Well, Sarah, we are so excited to have you join us today because we have a letter that we would love your expertise on. Our letter writer's child is exhibiting some neurodivergent behaviors, and as such, the child's pediatrician is recommending getting an evaluation. Our letter writer is nervous that getting this evaluation will mean that the child will be seen as a diagnosis and not for who she is. We're also going to catch up on our week in parenting, and if you're in the Slate Plus Club, we're going to take the frustration out of your kid constantly saying no. Here's what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. I had this one family I worked with, and the little girl, so they'd say, for breakfast, do you want oatmeal or toast? And she'd say, toast. And then they'd start making toast, and then she'd say, no! And then she would have enough time to think. And then she would give the answer that she actually wanted. They need more think time. And so they will say no to buy themselves some time to think. By becoming a Slate Plus member, you'll enjoy a weekly bonus segment and all your beloved Slate podcasts without any advertisements. It's the ultimate way to enhance your listening experience while also providing vital support to the show. You can join Slate Plus today by visiting slate.com slash mom and dad plus. All right, we are going to jump into triumphs and fails as soon as we get back from this short break. We're back. We like to start off by sharing a short story from our week in parenting, loosely framed as a parenting triumph or parenting fail. Sarah, your kids are older, so feel free to share one from your past. But do you want to get us started? Sure. I'm going to tell a story from the past, which is both a fail and a triumph. Our favorite kind. (laughs) So it started out as a fail. Um, The setup is that my kids were at uh, a party with me and my husband, and we were in a very, very gorgeous, modern American house that had no upholstery in it, so lots of... uh, very loud sounds in it. And um, it was a party with a lot of kids. And at the end of the party, um, the kids had been throwing ping pong balls at each other. And so there were a lot of ping pong balls everywhere. And I told them they needed to clean up. And so my older son was walking around with his shirt. And my younger son and all the other kids were throwing ping pong balls into his shirt. And he tripped and fell. Mm. And all the ping pong balls went everywhere. And my younger son ran over and bit him really hard on the arm and broke skin. It was so awful. And we were like, what was that? And we have a rule that when one child uh, hurts another child, that for a while, then they cannot be alone with each other without parental supervision. That's the rule, because we never want our kids to feel unsafe. And, um, And so... Uh, I implemented this, and my younger son was really mad, really mad. My oldest son, of course, was in pain, (laughs) so we were feeling a lot of sympathy. So anyway, we kept trying to figure out why my younger son bit my older son. Like, was he mad that he dropped the balls, or what was it? So three weeks later, and that's weeks, I realized that the noise was so loud 
that my younger son thought he was being attacked. And I asked him, I said, I said, hey, did you, when, you know, when, when you bit your brother, was it because you thought he did that on purpose and, and hurt you on purpose? And he said, he looked at me like I was an idiot and said, well, yeah, (laughs) it had never occurred to me. So the win is I figured it out. (laughs) The fail is that we punished him for something you know, for three weeks. So that was kind of bad. But the win was we figured it out. <laughs> I feel that this story is bringing clarity. I'm literally, as you're telling the story, thinking about, um, okay, so many listeners know my oldest Henry has pandas, which is a form of autoimmune encephalitis. So a uh, virus has caused some brain swelling, which often presents as ADHD or other neuroatypical behaviors. But we, we have had the fight or flight reflex is there all the time. We're having those same kind of behaviors. And yes. um, yeah, we have incidences where he has bitten as a, as a 10-year-old, as an 11-year-old. And literally, as you are telling the story, I'm sitting here thinking, mm-hmm. in every circumstance, there has been a trigger like that. And, and yes, I'm like, why are you biting? And he's like, I don't know. And as you say this, I'm like, oh, it's because he's in fight or flight. And I have never. So, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've been here two minutes and already already <laughs> totally changed my perspective. Can I ask you, after you had that realization, like, what is your conversation with your son, the, the, the biter? Did you apologize for the... Because, like, they still bit. Absolutely. But it was fight or flight. I mean, that's... You know, yeah. we bite because that helps regulate, right? Like that, that chewing and, and, you know, clenching your jaw, it helps you self-regulate. I mean, I felt terrible. And so I said to him, you know, I said, I am so sorry. We thought you were being mean to yeah. your brother because, you know, you were expecting him to be perfect. Do you stay pretty calm in those moments? Like, is your instinct to, to yell in those moments to, or you stay pretty calm? I used to be a yeller. Um, and now <laughs> I've had 20 plus <laughs> years of practice. I'm much better. But also, like kids in their 20s are definitely calmer than yes, yes, you know, yeah. little kids. So it's easier to not get upset. Right. But I had to learn a lot of strategies to get to the point where I could stay calm um, in the moment because it's hard. It's hard. We're wired to respond in kind. Right. We're wired to react big like they are reacting. And so tamping that down is really hard, but it really does help. (laughs) Um, For my triumph and fail, I have kind of a quandary. So hopefully you can you can help me. We're just in kind of a sticky situation. So we moved to Tokyo. Uh, we've been here about two months and Henry, my 11 year old is the one with pandas. And then I have, um, Oliver who is, I'm like, how poor middle child. I have Oliver who's nine, uh, and he's my ADHD creative thinker. Um, and then I have Teddy who's turning seven today and he is my, I've always joked that he is like my feral child. He is just like of his <laughs> own. We had been homeschooling and now they're in school. So that's kind of the, the catch up oh, there wow. in a international school here. Uh, we are all adjusting to that, but the 11 year old, when we got here, he ha- was fully in a panda's flare, including his ticks were back, um, which we haven't dealt with since I, I think 
maybe one of the first times I talked about this on the show, but he had this eye blinking tick. So he's constantly blinking his eyes and doing a little, he has a little verbal tick, throat clearing. Mm-hmm. The doctors that we work with, like we have a protocol that we go with in the States, we're able to get that medicine really quickly here. It took a few weeks and we had to have it mailed. So he started school. I mean, we were on our normal medication. So I would say he was like emotionally regulated, but we weren't able to do any of the things for the physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. And I bring this up because as he started school with this, so we're already sort of behind the curve he is less self-control just life is kind of harder when he's in one of these flares but he's also starting middle school with this like blinking and it looks weird and 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 I find that when he has this physical tick it is harder for me like I'm watching him do it and my gut instinct is to be like stop blinking which I know he has no control over um but I just find that that taints our interactions because as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking like, why why can't you just stop blinking, even though he has no control of it? So that's kind of the mental state I'm in. But he is having a really hard time making good friends, which I know we move all the time. I This is a very normal thing, but I am feeling guilty. All the All the mom feelings. I think guilt is kind of what I'm sitting with right now. I think I'm looking for advice on how to weather this moment. The thing I that I kind of honed in on what you were saying with the blinking is that I think so often as parents, what happens to us is we see the thing, like the blinking or, you know, the ticks or whatever, and we know what it means. Yeah. Right. We've got all this history behind yeah. it, right? We've got all these years of trying to figure out what in the world it was and knowing that he's feeling dysregulated and worrying about him. And you've got all that behind just a simple eye blinking. That's so true. Right? Yeah. And so, so it's hard not to like trigger another, oh no, are we headed into another situation? Right. And so trying to just remind yourself that he's just blinking. It's just a tick. We're doing everything we can. And you know what? The other kids might think he's weird. Oh, well. (laughs) We don't know. I mean, that's such a good point. And you're right. I am feeling the panic of of the totality of the pandas, like from the days before we know this even happened. And the blink is very triggering because it was one of the first like, like things that led to a diagnosis, you know, so this is the thing. So often in parenting, it's like actually about us. I mean, sometimes it's not about Uh us, it's about the kids. And in this, it's it's like, this is about him, but I've made it about me (laughs) and my feelings and me seeing this long path. I would just meet him where he is. And you're so right about that. Like, I try so hard not to project my own stuff onto my kids. Um, And quite frankly, they often don't even realize like how, how much how how much you have done to help them like they're completely unaware of that. And they always will be that's just the way it is. And, um, And so they don't understand like why you would be upset about that or worry about that. And you don't want them to understand. (laughs) No, I mean, the good news is I'm far enough in this journey to know that like, these are conversations I'm having with my friends with my husband, not with him. I do think my forward facing posture with him is like, like you said, 
we're still really new here. How can I help you? You know, do you want to do something fun after school? Can we invite a friend yeah. over? Like, let's try to figure out there has to be someone that will accept a play date. <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> like, like we're going to get through this. But it is, it's hard watching kids have a hard time. It's hard watching kids that already have like a challenging life have a hard time because I just in the back of my head too I'm like can we just catch a break you know (laughs) yeah yeah I there is a mental frame that I take that has been very helpful for me with my kids which is that it is their journey Mm. and they have to figure it out and I'm here as a guide but it's not my journey yeah it's it's their journey I post little things like that on my mirror <laughs> that I like need to know. Seriously, like I, those are the type of things that when they resonate this way, I write them and I put them on my mirror so that it, that is kind of my, you know, like, okay, these are the things that I'm going to take with me into battle today. And that's such a good, yeah, this is his journey. I'm just his guide. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, Sarah, on that note, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to try to help someone else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're back. Let's hear today's question. Dear mom and dad, I'm the happy mom of a very happy five-year-old. I mean, this kid is happy. She has lots of friends, loves doing any and all activities, and she is so ready for school. The thing is, she's also definitely neurodivergent. Her pediatrician is urging us to get a formal evaluation, and I can see why. While my kid loves to be read to, she's also likely to be standing on her head on the couch next to me while I read to her. She's a numbers whiz, but struggles to dress herself. There's other things going on too, sensory seeking stuff, an aversion to certain sounds, an oral fixation with lots of thumb sucking, and she generally moves through life on fast forward. I have ADHD myself, and I was evaluated at a similar age, and before that evaluation, I was miserable. My older child also needed an evaluation when he was younger. And at that time, he was struggling and suffering. But my daughter is not miserable, struggling or suffering. She has so many strengths that, to me, seem clearly swirled within this neurodivergence. Her flexible thinking, her acute imagination, her enthusiasm, her adventurous spirit, her bravery, her humor. I do know how important interventions are, and I can't quite figure out what's bothering me about all this. I have no problem with it when I picture her in occupational therapy working on things like getting dressed or thumb sucking. It's just that the thought of pathologizing such a happy, healthy, and cooperative child kind of makes me sick to my stomach. Her dad and I have taken the approach of radical acceptance of her unusualness. We love her brain in all of its atypical glory. Within the confines of things like the public school system and insurance requirements, how do I seek interventions while keeping such a strength-based view of my kiddo? How do I find providers who will see her for who she is instead of a diagnosis? How do I trust these systems in this world with my precious, confident, unique little girl? Thank you. Evaluating the evaluation. What an amazing parent. I just want to say I love this parent so much. I'm all about the strengths, right? Because one of the things about any kind of neurodivergence is that whether it's a strength or a weakness depends on context. 
So, you know, she, one of the stories the letter writer told earlier on is, you know, while they're doing work, her daughter might be standing on her head on the couch, you know, <laughs> while they're reading or whatever. And I love that, right? I, I love, I love the energy of that. And the, um, yeah, it just, she sounds like a really amazing kid. Um, but if you're in class, and you're, t- you need to stand on your head to be able to concentrate, guess what? All the other kids are going to be like, who are you and what are you doing? And depending on the teacher, the teacher may be saying, who are you and what are you doing, right? And so up to now, the parents have had lots of control over how their daughter is viewed, but she's starting school now. And so there are going to be other eyes on what's going on here. And one of the things that you just have to think about is, will the knowledge help your daughter develop strategies that help her cope better, right? And, you know, understand that in environment A, I need to be this way, it's okay in environment B to be another way. And if she needs to stand on her head, then they need to get those supports in place at school so she can go stand on her head. (laughs) I agree with you that for our family, having the paperwork of a diagnosis for kids has been something that has opened doors and the labeling is going to happen. Like, yes, it's not happening yet for you, but that's going to happen whether you have the diagnosis. And I always viewed it as like, I got to decide as the parent who I share the diagnosis with. I don't have to go into every circumstance and be like, the new camps are here and we have a kid with pandas and a kid with ADHD and this feral <laughs> learner, right? Like I get to share those labels and and that information as I think is needed. I think this letter writer is like very worried that once you slap that label on, everyone's world change it. Like, like just there's like a switch that goes off in everyone's head on how their their child is perceived. I mean, is your experience that that, does happen in schools, like once she gets this and and shares it, is now her child unable to be this free, happy person? Well, you are so right about getting labels one way or another. So the label could be naughty, (laughs) right? The label could be disrespectful. Uh, The label could be um, a pain in the rear end. Right. So there, there can be all sorts of labels that your child is getting that are not just, I am neurodivergent and I need to move more, right, than other kids do. So the labeling's happening one way or another. And, and so you're absolutely right about that. You are also absolutely right that that label is under your control as a parent to some extent. Um, <laughs> Because it is also true that teachers talk to each other, right? Yeah. And, and kids talk to each other. And so you share that information when you want to or need to. And your child's educational record does not leave. Like once you graduate, nobody knows. <laughs> Yeah, it's not like right? your, it's the not job on the transcript. Like, Could you please give us your yeah. your educational yeah, record? Provide. We would like to see yeah. what your third grade teacher said about you. Yeah. 
<laughs> or, you know, did you have an IEP? That's yeah. not going to be yeah. something they can ask, right? And so you are in control as an adult with as much as you want to share. And what you said is so true that it opens doors because, you know, if if people know she's having trouble sitting still and she's not being naughty, she's just needing to move, right? Then you know, then you can just say, okay, she just needs to move. She needs a little movement break right now. That's okay. Yeah, I I felt like it provided a good um, framework. And I talked about uh, Henry was in a school for a year in the States for fourth grade, this wonderful outdoor school. And I talked Mm. on many episodes about getting (laughs) the IEP that uh, we had a 504, getting a 504 in place for him and kind of the, the struggles of that. But fundamentally what that provided I felt like was a safety net. And and the 504 came from the diagnosis, right? Like without a diagnosis, without having gone to all these different providers for them to evaluate him and say, these are the things, these are the supports he needs. We used so few of them, but to me it was it was that. It was being able, if he had one of these yeah. outbursts or had something happen that we weren't backpedaling that we had it in place for everyone to know oh yeah this is a kid that that this may happen we hope it never happens but if it does he is like you said he's in fight or flight sort of like your triumph and fail he is not a bad kid who hurts people he is a kid in fight or flight that we need to help as well and i wanted that to be in place i for this child in particular, because we are talking about a female and all of the research tells us with neurodivergent females how much they mask, they are just amazing at at masking so that they are not different and the energy that that takes. To me, I, I, am, I feel more called to be like, go get evaluated because we are talking about a, a female child who statistically is more likely to pour energy into being good in the classroom to her Mm -hmm. own detriment um, to the point of focusing so much on not being disruptive and trying to behave like the other kids she sees instead of focusing on her own learning and what she needs. And so I think that there's some empowering, like you said here to, to telling her, Hey, you know, this is what we're dealing with. This is how your brain works and it's going to work better if you let it have some movement. And it's going to work better if if you can ask for these things that you're feeling in your body. And I also wonder, like, how many... Because, you know, there's all this on um, Instagram and TikTok now of, of people older, particularly women, being mm-hmm. like, oh, I was probably... I probably should have gotten an ADHD diagnosis, or I probably should have gotten this diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, she's pointing... Sarah's pointing at herself. I literally was diagnosed with ADHD at 56 years of age. Yeah, so. I, and, and I think that... And is, it makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> that That is for sure. I mean, I it, and that thing I said about it's the flip side, the strengths in one context are weaknesses in another context. You know, a kid who loves standing on her head and running around might be an amazing gymnast, right? Yeah. And... You know, and so in the right context, then, you know, this kid's going to be incredible. But if she's going to have to sit still in a classroom for eight hours, that's that's going to be a context in which it's really, really challenging. And, you know, this thing about blaming yourself, I mean, that is so true. Like, I think we all have this idea that there's some uh, way we are supposed to be. 
And when we can't be that way, there's a lot of self-blame. And to be honest with you, even with the diagnosis, I still, mm. like, I'll things will come up, like, I'm really terrible with names, like, terrible, terrible, terrible with names. And, um... And it, it's it's just part of who I am, and I have no working memory whatsoever, and so um, and so I forget stuff all the time, and I have a lot of strategies for managing yeah. that. I have like ten thousand pages of handwritten notes and things like that that I do to keep myself on track. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder too if these like younger because I I read this and I'm thinking like do these younger diagnosis like having that and us having that be more part of the framework now. My hope is that that also changes kind of society, right? Like if all of a sudden half the kids in the school school have are like, oh wait, it's not like this tiny percent is over here, yes, and yes. and we're you know we're trying to help the system, help them. It's like maybe the system in general needs to look different. I mean, that's my hope, right? Is that we can start seeing kids kind of all sitting on the spectrum and that our learning tools in school can serve all of them, not just these, the ones that whose brains are apparently quiet and they learn really easily and (laughs) and we're adapting to everyone else. Like how can the system do this? But it can't do that if we're all masking. Um, Correct. (laughs) And, and so to the outside observer, it is very clear that something is up with this kid. Right. And so that those outward behaviors, you know, that's those are the kids who get diagnosed. I mean, I, my younger son, I used to call him an effective self advocate. (laughs) (laughs) Because because he got an early diagnosis, unlike my older son. So yeah. And the other the other thing I I did want to say is, I have that dream myself. It does not always work out that way, though. Sometimes those labels get used in very hurtful ways. Um, and I'll just give a really terrible example. My older son um, had a what it was an esophageal um, yeast infection. Mm. Okay, so that's a yeast infection in your throat. It's very, very painful. You cannot swallow. He lost like 20 pounds in three weeks. It was horrible. And we were in and out of the hospital because he couldn't keep anything down. And one of the hospitals we checked into I told them he was autistic, and I am not kidding you. The minute I said that, they were like, oh, it's all in his head. He needs to go see a psychiatrist. And they discharged him, and his developmental pediatrician and his regular pediatrician were livid. You know, they're like, he's never had this problem before. This is not a psychiatric issue. This is a physiological issue. And the next time, you know, they they said, don't go to any other hospital, go to Children's National Medical Center. And, and that was where we ended up getting the diagnosis. But I, I could watch the switch flip in the doctor's head. And she was a very nice person. And I think she was smart. But Boy, the neurodivergence, the possibility of neurodivergence, like to her, that was the most clear and reasonable explanation for all these GI issues he was having. And, and I mean, he could have died from that, right? Yeah, like, that's yeah. terrible. No, I mean, I think as parents, we have to be advocates. I have, you know, similar stories of going in with things mm-hmm. for pandas. And the solution to that is not not getting the diagnosis. The solution to that is almost knowing, knowing what the diagnosis is and understanding it better than anyone else. Be your child's, right, like biggest advocate. 
it's my job to know his binder, right? Those of us that have have mm-hmm. kids have these binders. I know his binder better than anyone else. Maybe maybe even better than him. I mean, he knows how he's feeling and those sort of things, but I I know that. And so when I get that from a teacher or from a it's it's almost like now I the lights go on like now's my job. I'm being called up, you know, like, like, okay, like I know you're wrong and I know this kid better than anyone else. So I have to go find someone that will take us yeah. seriously or that can right. provide these right. um, versus I worry if you don't have a diagnosis and you don't know exactly what you're dealing with. And a diagnosis doesn't always provide that either. Like uh, <laughs> you can go many rounds before something really hones in to understanding. Yeah. Right. But once you have that, for me, it was empowering to know, like, no, when he gets, you know, strep, we need that we need to be on an antibiotic. Yeah. That is the only thing that is going to stop this from being. And if you are not going to give that to me because you are not educated in this, I have to go to a place that will. Yeah, that's correct. And um, the other piece of this that I'll just, since I have older children, this yeah. is on my mind, is that your children are going to have to advocate for themselves when they become adults, right? And so they're going to have to learn to know themselves and how, you know, how whatever needs to happen. I um, I just wrote a book. I'm a co-author on a book called Is This Autism? About these masking people. Um, but uh, one of the things that was shocking and upsetting in that book was talking about medical conditions that co-occur. And uh, one of the things that is very common is that autistic people do not get good medical help because people don't take them seriously when they say, I'm in pain, because maybe their affect is flat, right? And so they say, I'm in, you know, on a scale of one to 10, my pain is a 10, but they're sitting here like calmly saying, right. And the doctor's like, there is no way your pain is a 10. And then when they get in there, they're like, oh my goodness, how are you even talking? (laughs) You know, and the person is saying, I was telling you it was a 10, you just weren't listening. And so knowing about yourself that you have, you know, an, mm. an affect that is flat and therefore may not be communicating that as, as intensely as you intend it can help you figure out how to communicate with your medical providers, for example. And so your children are going to have to learn how to do that for themselves because you cannot do that for them forever. And so they are going to have to learn how to do that. And so understanding it as this is how my brain is wired and yes, it is hard for me. I, I love the mantra, it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. Mm. I really like that mantra, because our kids have to learn, okay, this is who I am. So here's, here's what we can do. I think that's a, that's a great place to end the conversation on this, on this letter. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> evaluating the evaluation thank you so much for writing in this was such a like good heartfelt letter and i can already tell you are just you're doing the right thing you're you're fighting the good fight so so keep it up we want to know how it goes so please write us back let us know and anyone else out there we always have listeners that are having similar experiences and you guys have wonderful advice so please write in share that with us you can email us at mom and dad at slate.com or give us a call at 646-357-9318 that's also where you can send your own questions that's it for our show please subscribe leave a rating and review and tell your friends 
We are going to be off for Indigenous Peoples Day on Monday, but we will be back in your feeds next Thursday. This episode of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Maura Curry. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Slate Audio. For Dr. Sarah Wayland, I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. Thanks for listening. 